Hi, dear listener, and thanks for tuning in to our podcast today. My name is Nyla. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at McGill University studying arts-based knowledge translation. And today I'll be taking you through 10 papers that were published in November 2021 on the topic of prevention and intervention of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Before we dive into the literature, a quick introduction to the A-Minder podcast. I'll be back. Welcome to A-Minder a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. On the roster for today, I've got three papers on modifiable risk factors and seven on neuromodulatory techniques. I'll admit that my first category is a bit arbitrary. Technically, any risk factor that's ending up in a prevention and intervention episode is modifiable, and there's a lot of argument about what is modifiable or what is a lifestyle factor. Nonetheless, it can be quite difficult to come up with subheadings in these episodes, so you're just going to have to accept my categorization. Before I get into the first paper, I just want to remind you that what follows is an overview of the latest literature. I'm basing these summaries on the paper abstracts, but if you want to dig into the methods and conclusions, I encourage you to follow up on the papers by finding them in the attached bibliography. I'll number the papers and provide references throughout. With that, let's start off with a rather peculiar topic before we spend the rest of the episode on the usual, that is diet, exercise, and neuromodulatory techniques. But our first paper today is on snoring, or more precisely, snoring remediation with oral appliance therapy potentially reverses cognitive impairment, an intervention-controlled pilot study. This is by first author Schramm, last author Chapman, from the Texas A&M University College of Dentistry, as well as the University of New England in Portland, and it was published in Geriatrics. So first off, what is oral appliance therapy? A quick Google search has informed me that this is the use of a dental device or a mouth shield to hold the jaw in position while you sleep and to help prevent sleep apnea and snoring. The authors were also interested in respiration rate, which could be linked to the entrainment of brain neural networks and mild cognitive impairment, or MCI, or Alzheimer's disease, or AD, pathology. Putting these two concepts together, the authors asked, firstly, whether respiration rate during stable sleep is related to disease severity in patients with MCI and AD who snore. And the second question is if the use of oral appliance therapy would influence the respiration rate. They recruited 14 cognitively normal, 14 MCI, and 9 AD individuals to their pilot study, a subpopulation of which received the oral appliance intervention. The authors measured the maximum respiration rate, as well as the fluctuation during over 2,000 stable sleep periods, and they assessed cognitive function using the Montreal Cognitive Assessment before and after the four-week therapy. And from what I gather, a stable sleep period refers to one where the respiration rate was stable, but I encourage you to check the paper for details. So they found that, at baseline, cognitively normal participants had a significantly higher fluctuation in respiration rate than did the participants with Alzheimer's, but this difference was not evident between cognitively normal and MCI participants. 
The oral appliance intervention did have an effect on respiration rate, specifically by lowering the maximum rate, both in MCI and in AD patients. Some of the patients also showed an improvement in executive function and memory following the treatment, but again, check the paper for more details. Next up, we have a paper on one of the world's favorite beverages, namely coffee. Caffeine consumption and its potential protective effects for AD has come up in my previous risk factors and epidemiological studies episodes, but this is the first time I've seen an experimental study to get at the underlying mechanism. Paper 2 was published in the Journal of Food Biochemistry by first author Zidane and last author Sakran at the University of Tabuk in Saudi Arabia and Tanta University in Egypt. And the title of Paper 2 is Anti-Alzheimer's Disease Potential of Arabian Coffee versus Date Palm Seed Extract in Male Rats. The authors compared the cognitive and pathological effects of caffeinated, that is Arabian coffee, versus decaffeinated date palm seed coffee in an aluminum chloride-induced rat model of AD. Their study included 20 male rats, which were divided into four groups. Group 1 acted as a negative control. Group 2 was the aluminum chloride AD model without any treatment. Group 3 was the AD model rats with Arabian coffee. And lastly, group 4 was the AD model rats with date palm seed coffee. And if you're wondering how the coffee was delivered to the rats, you'll have to check the paper for that as it's not stated in the abstract. The authors found that both types of coffee, so both the Arabian caffeinated and date palm seed decaffeinated, protected against memory impairment and reduced serum levels of abnormal amyloid beta. So A-beta is one of the key pathological hallmarks of AD. They were surprised to find that the decaffeinated date palm seed coffee appeared to have more protective effects than the caffeinated Arabian coffee, particularly in terms of the amyloid beta levels. Keeping in mind that this was a relatively small study, these findings suggest that both caffeinated and decaffeinated coffee may be able to reduce A-beta production and thus protect against cognitive impairment. Moving on to another hot topic, we've got a paper on exercise. The mechanisms underlying the therapeutic effects of exercise come up regularly in my prevention and intervention episodes. So if you're interested in the history of this topic, or at least the last year and a half-ish of literature on it, you can check out the previous bibliographies or episodes to get a sense of the latest research on the matter. But onward to today's paper, we've got a study in an AD mouse model this time by first author Huang and last author Cho. This is coming from the Korea National Sport University and the Dongguk University, also in Korea. It was published in the journal Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise, and the title is Exercise Reverses Amyloid Beta Peptide Mediated Cognitive Deficits in Alzheimer's Disease Mice Expressing Mutant Presenilin 2. The authors tested the effects of treadmill exercise on cognition and pathology in the PSEN2 transgenic mouse model. So as a side note, we often talk about PSEN1 in these episodes. That's a common mutation linked to Alzheimer's disease and a common animal model. But this time we're looking at PSEN2. 
So specifically, the authors had four groups, non-transgenic control mice, mice that expressed a wild-type human presenilin 2, so that's another control, mice expressing the human mutant presenilin 2, so that's the AD transgenic mice, and then they also had AD transgenic mice who underwent treadmill exercise five days a week for six weeks. And to be clear, there was only a transgenic mouse group that underwent exercise, not a wild-type group. The authors found that, compared to the AD mice that did not undergo exercise, those who did showed improved memory function as tested by a novel object recognition test. But the differences in other behavioral tests, such as the water maze test and passive avoidance test, were not significant. Biochemical analyses also showed that there was a reduction in AD pathology following exercise, specifically in amyloid oligomer reactive bands and plaque deposition in the hippocampus, although this was not statistically significant. And lastly, if you'd like to hear about the molecular pathways that were altered and could account for this improvement in AD pathology and cognition, as usual, check out the paper for those details. So that brings us to our second section of the podcast, which is neuromodulatory techniques for treating AD. These are primarily stimulation paradigms and other non-pharmacological interventions to modulate neuronal activity. First up today is a paper on acupuncture. Again, this is a topic that comes up fairly often in my episodes. So paper four is entitled Acupuncture for Amnestic Mild Cognitive Impairment, a Pilot Multicenter Randomized Parallel Controlled Trial. The first author is Zhang and the last author is Zhang, but there are multiple authors in between. It was published in Medicine and it's coming from the Guangzhou University in China. This paper described an upcoming study in which the authors will examine the effects of acupuncture in individuals with amnestic MCI, as this patient group is at risk of developing AD. The author's aim is to assess the efficacy and safety of acupuncture and to explore its feasibility in treating amnestic MCI. They will recruit 50 patients with MCI, half of which will be allocated to an acupuncture treatment and the other half to a sham treatment. And you can check the paper for the planned frequency of the treatment as well as the specific acupoints that they'll be targeting. The authors plan to look at the Montreal Cognitive Assessment three and six months post-treatment as a primary outcome of the study, but they also list multiple other neuropsychological assessments, brain imaging, and physiological measures as secondary outcomes. Lastly, they'll also be reporting on safety and feasibility outcomes, so stay tuned. This next paper is actually in Chinese, but as the abstract has been translated to English, I'll give you a quick summary. It's also on a acupuncture technique. It's called abdominal acupoint thread embedding therapy. And I'd like to preface this one by saying I couldn't find much on this technique online, but it seems to be the use of acupuncture needles to inject absorbable biomedical material into specific acupoints, in this case on the abdomen. You'll learn more in a second, but first, the title of paper 5 in English is Abdominal Acupoint Thread Embedding Therapy Based on Brain-Intestinal Connection for Mild to Moderate Alzheimer's Disease and Its Effects on Serum Levels of APP and Amyloid Beta 142. The first author is Yang, and the last author is Lin, and this is also from the Guangzhou University in China. 
Given the gut-brain connection and its potential role in Alzheimer's disease, the authors were curious whether combining abdominal acupoint thread embedding therapy with the delivery of denepazil hydrochloride tablets would show any clinical benefit over the use of the oral denepazil hydrochloride tablets alone. So donepazil is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor that is used to treat some of the cognitive impairments seen in AD. And you can learn more about this in our treatment episodes. But back to this paper, the authors randomly divided 60 patients with AD into two groups. The control group that received the donepazil tablets alone, and that's 5 milligrams per day. And the observation group that additionally received the acupoint therapy once every 10 days. And in the abstract, you'll also find the specific abdominal acupoints. The study went on for two months, and the authors assessed cognition, neuropsychiatric symptoms, and blood biomarkers for amyloid beta pathology, both before and after the treatment. So compared to baseline, they found an improvement in the mini mental state exam scores in both groups following treatment, as well as in the scores of other neuropsychological measures and activities of daily living. The authors also report that the treatment group, so the one that also received acupoint, showed greater improvement than the control group, the one that just had denepazil, on these measures. Their measures of amyloid beta markers also revealed an improvement in both groups following the treatment, and again this was greater in the observation compared to the control group. So that suggests that abdominal acupoint thread embedding therapy could be an effective complementary therapy to denepazil, but given the novelty of this treatment, more research is needed. Okay, one more paper before the break. This one is on ultrasound and whether it can be used to selectively open the blood-brain barrier. And I have to say here that it's pretty neat to host the same episodes over several months because I get to see how these exciting experimental research avenues develop. I remember covering a paper on ultrasound and blood-brain barrier opening that came out last January, so let's see what's happened over the past year. The first authors are Park and Bake. The last author is Chang. It's coming from Yonsei University in Seoul, Korea, and was published in Translational Neurodegeneration. And the title of paper six is Extensive Frontal-Focused Ultrasound-Mediated Blood-Brain Barrier Opening for the Treatment of Alzheimer's Disease, a Proof-of-Concept Study. There's some evidence that opening the blood-brain barrier by focused ultrasound could help with the removal of amyloid plaques, one of the major pathological hallmarks of AD. This has improved cognition in animal models, but the authors wanted to know whether these promising results would hold up in a clinical study. As this technique is novel in humans, the authors focused their study on evaluating the safety, feasibility, and potential benefits of repeated and extensive opening of the blood-brain barrier. It was a small study in which five of six enrolled patients with AD completed the experimental treatment. The ultrasound-induced opening, which was performed twice at three-month intervals, targeted the bilateral frontal lobe regions over 20 centimeters cubed. The authors assessed the outcome by magnetic resonance and PET imaging, and a caregiver-administered neuropsychiatric inventory, as well as comprehensive neuropsychological tests both before and after the intervention. 
They confirmed that the focused ultrasound caused an opening of the blood-brain barrier at around 96% of the targeted volume. There was a slight but significant decrease in the uptake of the amyloid beta PET marker, so on PET imaging, after three months, and a temporary improvement in the neuropsychiatric inventory following the second treatment. While these results are preliminary, they suggest that the focused ultrasound procedure is safe and feasible for opening the blood-brain barrier in the frontal lobe and that it could help with amyloid removal. And that brings us to our break. I'll be back momentarily for the last four papers. Hi, dear listener. This is Nyla, host and co-founder here at Aminder. I've been hosting with the team since 2020, and not only has this taught me a lot about Alzheimer's disease, but I've also learned a lot about my inability to articulate words and to keep a consistent distance from the microphone. I apologize for that. But overall, it's been a really rewarding experience and one that we would love to share with you. If you'd like to take a deep dive into Alzheimer's research and science communication, then I've got good news for you. We're currently recruiting new hosts and content creators for the podcast. Just email us at aminderpodcast at gmail.com or contact us through our social media pages and tell us a little bit about yourself. Looking forward to working with you soon. Nearly 1 million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years. And sadly, no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. All right, so let's get back to it. But before I do, just a very quick shout out to the Canadian Consortium of Neurodegeneration and Aging. This is a hub of researchers across Canada looking at questions related to Alzheimer's disease and dementia, and they support our podcast by providing sponsorship. So that doesn't affect any of the content of our podcast, but it does allow us to keep producing it. So thank you. All right four papers to go, and here we're going to switch over to more conventional stimulation techniques, so one such as, well, in this one, transcranial current stimulation. This is a non-invasive technique that has shown promise for treating AD and other neurological disorders, and the authors of paper 7 investigated how it might work. This was published in Brain Science by first authors Yang and last author Han. It is coming from the Chonam National University Hospital in Korea, and the title of paper 7 is Modulation of Long-Term Potentiation by Gamma Frequency Transcranial Alternating Current Stimulation in Transgenic Mouse Models of Alzheimer's Disease. We're specifically looking at transcranial alternating current stimulation in this paper, as stated in the title, and I'll abbreviate that to TCS. The authors used the 5X FAD transgenic mouse model of AD, dividing their four-month-old mice into four groups. So there's wild-type mice without stimulation, wild-type mice with TCS, transgenic AD mice without stimulation, and transgenic AD mice with TCS. And you can check the paper for the details on the stimulation paradigm, which was delivered to the frontal lobe for 20 minutes over two weeks. 
The treatment had a clear electrophysiological effect, as measured by the excitatory postsynaptic potential recording, which was specifically increased in the AD mice that received stimulation compared to those who did not. There were, however, no changes in biochemical analysis, and the authors didn't look at cognitive or behavioral outcomes. Nonetheless, this suggests that TCS may enhance synaptic transmission in this AD mouse model. The next three papers are on various types of transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, which is another non-invasive technique in which a coil placed on the scalp delivers brief magnetic pulses in order to affect neuronal activity. This technique is already undergoing clinical trials for treating aspects of Alzheimer's disease. Paper 8 is one such clinical study, and it is entitled Accelerated Intermittent Theta Burst Stimulation Broadly Ameliorates Symptoms and Cognition in Alzheimer's Disease, a Randomized Controlled Trial. It was published in Brain Stimulation by first author Wu and last author Wang, and this is from the first affiliated hospital of Anhui Medical University in China. The authors wanted to know whether intermittent theta burst stimulation could enhance associative memory in patients with AD. They conducted a randomized, double-blind, sham-controlled design in which theta burst stimulation was administered to the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex of AD patients. The patients underwent a complete neuropsychological assessment at baseline right after the two-week intervention and eight weeks later. Out of the 60 patients who were initially enrolled, 47 completed the trial and showed improvements in associative memory compared to the sham group, that is, the group that received a fake treatment. This was sustained until the end of the study period, and many mental state exam scores also improved from baseline. The authors report on some other cognitive tests that were improved in the treatment group and conclude that the theta burst stimulation is an effective and safe therapeutic avenue for improving cognition in patients with AD. As promised, paper 9 is also on TMS, but a different stimulation paradigm. The title says it all. It's Modulating Gamma Oscillations Promotes Brain Connectivity to Improve Cognitive Impairment. It was published in Cerebral Cortex by first author Liu and last author Wang, and this is primarily coming from the Capital Medical University in Beijing, China. So apparently, gamma band waves in neuronal activity, particularly 40 hertz oscillations, have recently been found to be associated with higher-order cognitive functions. They may also be helpful in activating microglia in order to clear amyloid beta deposition, which would of course be very useful for treating AD. In this study, the authors administered either a 40 Hz high-frequency repetitive TMS or a sham treatment to 37 patients with probable AD. The treatment targeted the left posterior temporoparietal region, modulated gamma band oscillations, and resulted in up to eight weeks of significantly improved cognitive function. Based on further analysis with EEG and magnetic resonance imaging, the authors report that the TMS treatment prevented gray matter volume loss and enhanced both local and global functional integration in certain brain regions. You can check the paper for details, as well as for some results on dynamic connectivity measures. If that doesn't mean much to you, let me conclude by saying that the TMS treatment appeared to have both functional and structural benefits that could improve cognition in people with AD. The last paper for today is on TMS that specifically targets sleep disorders in AD, as these are often a comorbidity and can worsen cognitive decline. 
Paper 10 is published in Neuroscience Letters by first author Zhu and last author Peng from the Peking University China Japan Friendship School of Clinical Medicine, so that's in China, and the title is Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation for Sleep Disorders in Alzheimer's Disease, a Double-Blind, Randomized, and Sham-Controlled Pilot Study. So in this study, 70 participants were randomly divided into two groups, receiving either a sham treatment or a TMS intervention. The authors evaluated sleep changes using the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, both before and after the four-week intervention, and also assessed cognitive function. There was a significant improvement in sleep quality scores, both right after the intervention and at an eight-week follow-up, as well as improvement in cognition. That said, measures of activities of daily living, such as getting dressed or feeding oneself, did not differ between the sham and TMS groups. Overall, the findings show promise for using TMS to improve sleep in AD patients. So that brings us to the end of our episode. I hope you found it useful and accessible. And whether you did or not, we invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Of course, you can also reach out to us on social media with your feedback or just to say hello. And before I sign off, a huge thank you to the whole Aminder team. But in particular today to the sorting team who went through all of the new papers in November, Kate who reviewed and improved on my script, Chihiro who edited the audio, which was also double-checked by Anusha, and Anjana who made the bibliography that you'll find attached in the episode notes. Anusha is also the creative mind behind our music. You can check her out on SoundCloud under Anusha Kamesh or on YouTube under AK Music. If you would like to hear your name in the credits of a future episode, that is, if you'd like to join the team and help us out, please send us an email with your CV and a brief note about what you'd like to do. I can say that working on this podcast has been a really rewarding experience, and there's always plenty to be done to deliver content to our dear listeners. And with that, dear listener, I'll talk to you again soon.